0: All right, everyone, we're going to get started. Thank you all for coming. This is quite the uh, turnout. I think you have, uh, was telling her if it's a popularity contest. I think uh, we have a winner so far this year. So uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Megan uh, Gray Bolanders uh, in the Anesthesia Critical Care Group. Um, and she is going to be talking on uh, critical care or critical illness in, in pregnant patients, something that we all, I think, have a certain fear of. So please leave that fear for us. Thanks.
1: All right. Thanks, Mike. I'll do my best to uh, make you guys feel more comfortable with this topic at the end of the hour. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for having me today. This is a really distinguished uh, uh, lecture series, actually, and I'm excited to be part of it. Um, My name is Megan Anders. My background is in anesthesiology and critical care. Um, and as part of both of those um, uh, backgrounds, I've taken care of a lot of obstetric patients. And what I'd like to do today is review some of the principles of uh, obstetric critical care management um, for uh, – I know the audience here has a diverse critical care background, so I'm trying to put some topics in here that are relevant to everybody. Yeah. All right. So um, – Trying to hit today some of the board's topics, because for critical care boards and even for um, not critical care boards, some of the, uh, you know, zebras that are associated with obstetric emergencies uh, come up pretty frequently. But I'd also like to give you some practical words considerations, some real-life management strategies, because sooner or later you are going to end up with a pregnant or a a recently pregnant um, uh, early postpartum patient in one of your ICUs. Just a quick show of hands to get everybody interactive here. How many of you have taken care of a pregnant patient uh, in the ICU before? All right, so almost everybody, Um, you know, we encounter pregnant patients um, that come in through the emergency department, um, either stable or critically ill. Pregnant patients can come as trauma. Um, They can be in the hospital for other reasons and develop critical illness, uh, both related and unrelated to their pregnancy. Um, And the chances are, uh, if you haven't seen one yet, you're going to see one pretty soon. So um, just to review what you can expect from me today, first thing we're going to talk about is some physiologic changes of pregnancy that are important to consider in ICU medicine. There are some very distinct things that happen to a pregnant woman's body and physiology, and I don't want you to leave here mistaking normal pregnancy for abnormal physiology or vice versa. So we're going to review some of those, especially the ones that are important to critical care management. We'll also talk about the obstetric considerations for just general critical care practice, things like mechanical ventilation, sedation, vasopressors. Some of these things have things that you have to consider in pregnant patients. Some of them don't. I'm going to give you a heads up um, as to which is which. Then we'll dive into the pathophysiology and the management particulars of some of the life-threatening pregnancy-specific conditions. Um, You can probably already name a couple of those off the top of your head from, uh, you know, your med school obstetrics rotations. Um, We'll actually talk today about how to actually manage those patients uh, in your practice. And finally, we're going to discuss maternal cardiac arrest um, and the perimortem cesarean delivery. Um, which are always uh, very anxiety-inducing, rightfully so, um, procedures, but important for all of us to understand uh, and know how to perform. All right. So um, ICU admission is not uncommon in um, pregnant and postpartum women. For about 1,000 women that deliver, um, anywhere between 1 and 10 of them will come to the ICU, um, and pregnant women present for a wide variety of reasons. The most common ICU admission diagnoses for pregnant women are postpartum hemorrhage, and disorders of the hypertensive nature, um, the preeclampsia, eclampsia, eclampsia, pregnancy-specific complication spectrum. Um, In addition to those, there's, um, as we said before, there's going to be obstetric, which I've listed on the left-hand side, and non-obstetric reasons for uh, women to be admitted. Um, so women are particularly uh, susceptible to certain types of uh, sepsis. Um, asthma is frequently worsened by pregnancy, and so you may have a patient present in status asthmaticus uh, who's also um, uh, 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 pregnant. Um, pregnant women also have intracranial hemorrhage. They're more susceptible to pulmonary embolism, um, and the flu and pneumonia um, respiratory failure may be worsened by pregnancy state. Um, Mortality for women who require uh, critical care is actually pretty high. Um, estimates between 3.4 and 14% of women who are admitted to the ICU, and then obviously fetal mortality is another um, important consideration. And again, this is going to vary depending on your uh, practice location, country, uh, and you know uh, care setting. Uh, in the U.S., the leading cause of death in pregnant women is actually cardiovascular disorders. So, um, pre-existing, uh, you know, cardiomyopathy, um, undiagnosed cardiovascular disease, um, you know, uh, congenital um, uh, heart problems uh, can cause a lot of morbidity and mortality. It's important as a critical care practitioner that you understand the physiology and the obstetric-specific management. So let's start. Um, It's important, as I said, uh, to begin, is to know the normal physiologic changes in pregnancy. Um, This lets us differentiate the normal state from derangements and also lets you anticipate the special needs a woman is going to have when she presents to your critical care setting um, that would be different, um, you know, even six months ago for her, you know, a year ago for her before she was pregnant. So getting into the nitty-gritty, let's talk about respiratory physiology in pregnancy. One of the first changes that you're going to have to consider is a pregnant woman has a a greatly increased alveolar ventilation requirement um, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent and she'll achieve this through an increase in tidal volume and also respiratory rate. This is a progesterone mediated effect um, and it uh, is actually accompanied by a compensated degree of hypocarbia. So one of the most important is actually one of the pearls of this whole talk is going to be that normal PaCO2 for a pregnant woman, somewhere between 25 and 32. Um, So if you see a woman present with a higher PaCO2, you may actually, or or what we call normal, so in the, you know, uh, low 40s range, that actually may be a woman who's at the beginning of respiratory failure. Um, So know that you should be looking for um, a normally compensated hypocarbia. You do see the renal compensation there, with a normal bicarb being anywhere between 18 and 21. And when you're looking at, you know, your admission blood gas, it's it's important to remember that those things uh, should be present. Another one of the very important set of respiratory changes that happens to a woman is um, the, a combination of factors that will lead to an, a much faster desaturation. So we're used to patients with normal, healthy lungs you know, having some amount of oxygenation reserve, whether we're talking about um, you know, the time that they're apneic during rapid sequence uh, you know, intubation or just their general ability to kind of compensate with some kind of lung pathology. Pregnant women will desat very fast. Has anyone seen this happen? It's dramatic. Um, It's not something that you're prepared for the first time it happens, um, and it can lead very quickly to cardiopulmonary collapse and and cardiac arrest. So the reason this happens is twofold. A woman who's pregnant is going to have uh, an increased O2 consumption, uh, obviously because of the um, cardiac output and the oxygen demand of the fetus. Um, but pregnant women also have a decreased functional residual capacity. So as the gravid uterus gets larger and larger, it's going to impinge on the diaphragm, um, you know, kind of up into the thoracic cage, and the residual capacity uh, decreases. For those of you who are into more advanced um, uh, respiratory physiology, there's also an increase in small airway closures during exhalation, and this can contribute to hypoxemia as well. So especially when a woman becomes stressed, whether it's pain or generalized distress, and she's using more um, muscles for exhalation, the closing capacity um, will uh, lead to a faster desat and and more hypoxemia. So um, no anesthesiologist would be good at giving a presentation unless we put up one respiratory physiology diagram, and here's mine. Um, This is uh, um, comparing in the sort of center section of this diagram is a non-pregnant patient, and on the right-hand side is a a woman who's pregnant uh, at or near terms. This is saying seven to nine months. And what I'm trying to illustrate for you here um, is the decrease in the functional residual capacity um, is due to a decrease in the residual volume, which is the darker shaded area there. And you can see... um, you know, vital capacity for the most part is preserved. Um, total lung capacity is going to be a little smaller, as I said, because of the uterus, but there is a substantial decrease in the uh, functional residual capacity uh, due to the residual volume. And for those of you who aren't used to talking about, Respiratory physiology in these terms. What I like to tell people is that the residual volume and the functional residual capacity is sort of like the empty part of your gas tank. Um, You know, you you might drive a car that is an American car that reportedly has a larger sort of time between when you hit empty and when your car actually stalls out on the side of the road because of um, uh, lack of gas. So in this analogy. Gas is oxygen, um, the gas tank is the lungs, and that empty, that reserve you have on empty, is your functional residual capacity. So if you hit empty and you become apneic, you have the amount of oxygen that's left in your FRC to keep your saturations up, okay? So American cars or non pregnant women have a larger FRC. European cars trust you more, uh, pregnant women have a smaller FRC, and by the time you hit empty on a European car, or a um, you know, pregnant woman, and you become apneic, your FRC is much smaller. You can go a much shorter distance before you run out of gas or oxygen. So um, that's the important thing. And anything that decreases that FRC, so that can be pregnancy, obesity, um, supine positioning, is going to shorten the time that you have to have that patient uh, um, apneic without desaturating. And that's one of the really important respiratory management concept- concepts for a pregnant woman. So a couple of airway considerations um, that are unique to pregnant women is that there's actually a higher rate published of difficult or failed intubation. It's unclear if there's actually anatomic changes that underlie this or if it's sort of a general combination of... Difficulty mobilizing resources, this sort of uh, shorter time to desaturation that's going to put the pressure on the person who's performing the intubation. Um, but this is, um, in, at least with anesthesiology, considered to be a real phenomenon and a, a really important one. You do not, even if a woman, you know, like I said, a year ago came in for her appendix removed, was a perfectly easy airway, she may have a different airway and it may be unexpectedly difficult um, while she's pregnant. There's a couple things that can happen. There can be upper airway edema um, in the normal pregnant state, or if a woman has been receiving a lot of um, tocolytic therapy or magnesium therapy, uh, there can be a lot of uh, edema in those states. Um, women can also gain weight during pregnancy that can be uh, uh, increase in soft tissue. Um, Necks become less mobile, and there's more tissue around a woman's breast that can be, uh, come in the way of uh, laryngoscopy. Another important concept is the progesterone and hormone effects actually make the mucosa more friable. Um, You may hear uh, pregnant women complain of congestion or even nosebleeds, similar phenomenon. So when you go to perform laryngoscopy on a pregnant patient, um, you are much more likely to have a reduced view. And also to stir up bleeding. So your first look is really going to be your best chance. And you want to make sure that you've planned accordingly um, to have the, you know, the most skilled intubator, uh, the, right, the right emergency equipment the first time, um, because you may only get one shot at the airway for a pregnant patient. I'd also like to note that because of some changes, we're not going to talk a lot about the GI tract um, in this critical care lecture, but there is decreased esophageal sphincter term, um, near term, and also the mechanical displacement of the stomach by the uterus can lead to a higher aspiration risk. So even if a woman is appropriately fasted, okay, she's been you know, NPO for eight hours, or she hasn't eaten since yesterday, there's uh, more of a chance of uh, aspiration of uh, gastric contents that can lead to an aspiration pneumonitis and again, accelerate your, uh, your DSAT time. So, important to consider um, when you're planning to intubate a pregnant patient. Um, the figure I have here, I think, is a really nice demonstration of what it looks like to position a patient properly for laryngoscopy. Um, whether the patient is obese or pregnant, um, functionally, when it comes to laryngoscopy, uh, at term, they're, they're the same. So you can see the patient in the lower picture has been positioned with a ramp. Um, this one's made out of blankets. There's a couple different ways to do this. But the key I want to draw your attention to is that the earlobe has been made even with the sternal notch. And this is one of the easiest ways you can remember just to get someone positioned. It's not just propping the head up. It's also getting some support under the shoulders to elevate the shoulders and the head And really, um, you know, kind of get that uh, um, earlobe uh, forward to be more even with the sternal notch. And this is going to help you. This is not something you want to try to do once you've given um, drugs for intubation. This all needs to be done before you even attempt uh, uh, your intubation, okay, because you don't have the time that you would have in another patient. All right, so let's move and talk a little bit about cardiovascular physiology in pregnancy. Um, one of the most uh, profound changes is an increase in cardiac output, as much as a 40% increase by term, um, and this is due to both changes in increases in stroke volume and some increase in heart rate to a, um, you know, a high normal or a low uh, sinus tachycardic rate. Um, There is also a decrease in systemic vascular resistance as it's measured um, that continues to increase to term. Um, The placenta, for the most part, is a very low resistance circuit that gets added into your cardiovascular um, network. So that's going to decrease the SVR overall of the body. So despite the increase in cardiac output, that decrease in SVR means that blood pressures um, are the same or even a little lower. So first and second trimester is slightly lower than a patient's baseline and then back to about normal um, at term. There's some question about what happens to SVO2 in pregnant patients. And as I was going back and doing some of the research for this lecture, I actually found within definitive sources uh, some different answers. So some sources say that um, at least in the, you know, third or second and early third trimester, the increase in cardiac output is going to give you a higher SVO2 um, than normal, and then there's also other sources that say that your extraction picks up towards um, towards term and the end of the third trimester, making the SvO two lower. What I'm going to leave you with today is be careful of interpreting any one SvO num- two number in um, isolation in a pregnant patient. You'll probably need to consider, um, you know, where she is and, and what her other what your other physiologic indicators are. Another important. Um, uh, factor, um, and this is going to play heavily into maternal cardiac arrest um, and the rationale for uh, perimortem C-section, is the fact that when a pregnant woman um, with a, a gravid uterus is supine, there's a potential for aortocaval compression. So I have this diagram here. You can see on the left, this is an illustration that would be a pregnant woman laying on her back um, with a you know fairly significantly sized fetus, gravid uterus. Some, some sources say as early as 20 weeks this phenomenon can happen, but more likely 22, 24, 26 is where you're going to start to see this become a factor. Um, the weight of the fetus in the uterus can cause compression. Um, obviously, it's going to compress the uh, uh, inferior vena cava and the venous return first um, and, and more profoundly. Obviously, a decrease in the venous return um, from the lower half of the body, you know, less preload available, lower cardiac output in an undesirable state. The illustration on the right there is showing the effect of a left lateral tilt. So, trying to tilt away from the side of the cava and get most of the weight of the fetus and uterus off to promote venous return um, back to the heart and cardiac output. Another important uh, concept I just want to point out is that there's no autoregulation in the placenta. Um, as there is in a lot of our other vascular beds. So uh, when maternal, you know, maternal hemodynamics may remain compensated, but the placental circulation can still be suffering. And in this way, the fetus's status can actually serve as an early warning system for what's going on with mom. So mom's blood pressure may still be compensated, but if you're having, you know, um, fetal distress, that's an early warning sign for you as a, as a clinician taking care of mom uh, that you may need a, a heads up on what's going on there. All right, and also to review quickly, um, there's a normal physiologic anemia state in pregnancy. There's an increase in your total red cell mass of about 20%, but the plasma volume increases larger, somewhere between 40 and 50%, um, which means that your your uh, hemoglobin and hematocrit uh, in that volume expanded state are going to naturally be a little lower. There's also a mild leukocytosis and a mild thrombocytopenia somewhere you know, a little shy of, um, you know, the lower limit of 150, but not less than hundred. We wouldn't call that normal. Uh, that can go along with pregnancy. There's an increased clotting tendency, and this you guys know that pregnant women are at increased risk for DVTs, pulmonary embolism. The uh, physiology behind that is that, um, and this, the diagram is a little difficult to read, but the top half is the factors that are increased during pregnancy, middle section is uh, variably increased, decreased, or no change, and then the bottom half is decreased during pregnancy. The blue side is procoagulant factors. The green side is anticoagulant factors. So in pregnancy, we see an increase in everything in the upper left-hand corner. That's um, a lot of your clotting factors, fibrinogen, von Willebrand factor, a lot of the um, different uh, members of the clotting cascade. And on the um, anticoagulant side, there's a decrease in protein S, so almost like a physiologic required protein S deficiency. And the combination of these two factors is what's going to um, uh, increase the, the clotting tendency for pregnant women. <coughs> Alright, so moving into the second section, I'm going to talk um, for a couple slides about obstetric c- considerations for general critical care. So this is the normal supportive care we provide to almost all of our patients. Um, uterine and fetal monitoring. We'll talk quickly about sepsis considerations and uh, a little bit about maternal trauma and RH, um immunization. Maternal trauma is an entire topic in and of itself. I know some of you guys are trauma specialists, um, some have less background. I'm not going to cover the entirety of maternal trauma, just give you a few highlights. Let's talk about maternal supportive care. Um, what changes do you need to make to mechanical ventilation? There's lots of reasons a pregnant woman could need to be ventilated. But the first thing I'll ask you to remember is going back to our physiology section that your PaCO2 normal is lower than normal. So you're going to adjust your minute ventilation for a PaCO2 of 30 to 32. You don't want to get crazy and, you know, drive this patient into respiratory alkalosis because that can, also, that can um, affect some of the uterine blood flow. Um, But, you know, aiming for something that's outside of the normal range for a non-pregnant patient is entirely appropriate. There's a question of what to do in patients who, for whatever reason, have presented with acute lung injury or ARDS, um, where you would normally, if they were not pregnant, allow them permissive hypercarbia as part of your um, strategy to minimize uh, mechanical ventilator trauma. The literature on this is there's there's no studies, and unfortunately, a lot of pregnancy-related topics. There's no definitive clinical trials. Um, here, a lot of authors will say that it makes sense to avoid it if you can, of course. Um, but there have been some reports where, you know, maternal um, hypocarbia was allowed up to a PSU of 60 without any obvious um, uh, harm to the fetus. So um, one of the fundamental underlying concepts of, of obstetric critical care is that you need to take care of mom to be able to take care of the baby. And so I would say if you feel like you're in a situation where you have such severe acute lung injury that you have to um, go for permissive hypercarbia, uh, then then so be it. With regards to our sedation drugs, the things that we know to do um, for sedation and analgesia are avoid benzodiazepines and avoid NSAIDs. And beyond that, there's pretty limited evidence. There's some case reports, case series type things showing um, some evidence for propofol. There's less of that right now for uh, dexmedetomidine. Um, but I think, um, at least in, in this center, our practice has trended away from benzodiazepines uh, anyway, so we're, we're good there. Vasopressors, again, a lot of conflicting evidence. Um, there's some things that have been shown to decrease placental and uterine perfusion in animals, but not in humans, some inconclusive stuff from the human literature. So I'm going to present to you today that your first-line vasopressor for a pregnant woman while you're stabilizing her uh, is safe to be norepinephrine, and that's recommended. Um, mixed evidence on second-line um Phenylephrine may be used slightly more often in obstetric patients than in our general critical care population, but so much of this comes down to an individual patient's physiology, reason for being hypotensive in the first place, that it's going to be hard to make a general recommendation here. So let's talk for a minute about fetal and uterine monitoring because when when a pregnant patient is critically ill, she's going to be in your ICU, not in the normal setting of labor and delivery for the most part. Um, And this can make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. So when should you monitor? What exactly are you looking for? What are you going to do with this information you're getting from fetal monitoring? There's two components to fetal and uterine monitoring. One is looking for uterine contractility and basically just counting the number, duration, and strength of contractions. This can give you an indication that there may be abruption occurring or that a patient is developing premature labor. And monitoring for that is probably reasonable after 20 weeks. Obviously, all this is going to be in consultation with your obstetric colleagues. The other thing that, you know, will come into play is fetal heart rate monitoring. And again, I'm going to remind you that abnormalities here are an early sign of maternal distress. Remember, the mom can stay compensated uh, better than the placenta and the fetus can. Um, it's reasonable to consider this at the limit of viability in your institution. So 24 weeks is a general guideline, but some institutions will consider uh, viable fetus to be younger. Um, and this can help you guide therapy. There's this concept of in-utero resuscitation where um, if a fetus, you know, comes into distress, you can actually treat mom and the fetus uh, by providing extra oxygen, so supplemental oxygen, um, uh, administering IV fluids, and positioning mom in a full lateral tilt or, you know, completely on her side um, to try to promote blood flow um, and cardiac output. So that's kind of the in-utero resuscitation that will be done in response to changes in fetal heart rate. Um, The fetal heart rate monitoring, if the fetus gets into distress, that may also precipitate emergent delivery. And this is something that you want to, if you're the intensivist, you want to talk to your obstetric colleagues ahead of time and know what the plan is going to be. You don't want to be making this decision, you know, kind of in, you know, as things are evolving. So you need to know when somebody comes up to monitor a patient in your unit, you need to say, hey, what's going to prompt you to deliver this patient be pretty clear with them um, as far as what the algorithm will be. A right. couple points on sepsis. Um, there's some sources that are different for pregnant women than, than uh, normal. Um, urinary tract infections and pyelonephritis are definitely more common among pregnant women. Um, there's a core anionitis um, that can happen uh, with an actual uh, infection while the um, uh, patient is pregnant. And then uh, after delivery, a patient can have an infection of the uh, uterus that's endometritis. Um, so when you talk about source control, these are important sources to consider. Sepsis management is going to be very similar to non-pregnant patients. Use your goal-directed therapy. I'll just remind you of that caution about SVO2 interpretation. Go ahead and use your other clinical indicators of adequacy or resuscitation if you're not sure how to interpret your SVO2. The other thing I want to just point out about sepsis is it's very easy to reassure yourself that you have a young, healthy patient whose tachycardia and or hyperventilation and or leukocytosis are the normal things in pregnancy. And um, I've found, um, you know, working with a variety of people who don't take care of critically ill patients, that the, the, the people are willing to write off a lot of this until you walk in the room and somebody's heart rate's in the 140s breathing 35 times a minute, and you're saying, this is not, we, we can't put this on any spectrum. This is sepsis, and it needs to be treated like sepsis. So um, remember that there's normal physiologic changes um, that can mimic early sepsis, but young obstetric patients compensate very well. Um, they will stay compensated right up until the point that they aren't. Um, so just be careful. be careful. All right, a couple points on maternal trauma, um, and again, I said this is an entire lecture of itself, I'm not giving that lecture today, but I want to remind you that even mild maternal trauma, so even you know, low um, impact um, uh, vehicular accidents or falls, can still result in, in important fetal complications. Um, even when mom has no injuries but has a traumatic mechanism, fetus, there can be complications. Complications can include uterine rupture, placental abruption where the placenta um, separates from the um, uh, uterus and can cause some internal uh, hemorrhage, uh, and premature labor. Um, When a mom has sustained trauma and and has a a potentially viable fetus, the recommendation is at least four hours of fetal heart rate monitoring and longer if the mom has contractions, uh, any vaginal bleeding, abdominal pain, or an abdominal mechanism. Um, there's a concept that if preterm delivery is likely, um, giving mom antenatal steroids can actually increase the baby's um, surfactant development and chance of having, uh, or lessen their chance of having respiratory distress uh, with premature lungs. So um, consult your obstetric colleagues early um, so you can get that started. The, lo- the, the, the earlier you can get that in, the better it is for the baby. And finally, just to uh, um, uh, another, you know, kind of underlying theme of this is stabilize an image mom as indicated. Everybody wants to limit radiation to the fetus, but if you've missed something in mom, um, you're going to ultimately cause more harm uh, to, that ch- to that fetus than, than, uh, than giving mom the appropriate diagnostic test. FAST is still reliable, so ultrasound can be used to look for free um, uh, fluid, and that can help guide therapy as well. And, kind of a little trivia point, don't forget to place your chest tubes higher than the usual landmarks. With a very gravid uterus, you're going to have um, cephalad displacement of all the all the contents. A couple points on fetal maternal hemorrhage. This is when the fetal circulation uh, mixes with mom's circulation. Um, it complicates up to 30% of um, trauma patients. Uh, that are obstetric, and um, the, the question is how much of the fetal blood crossed into the maternal circulation. So there's two tests for this, and this is prime board fodder. so did I put it in here for you. Um, the Kleihauer-Betke test um, is a, a manual test that looks for the percent of fetal cells in maternal circulation, and it does this by differentiating cells that contain hemoglobin A with hemoglobin F, the fetal hemoglobin. Um, so when you're, if, you, if you know or you suspect that there's been this cross-contamination of maternal and, and um, fetal circulation, this will help you understand exactly to what extent that occurred. And um, the more modern flow cytometry technique is becoming more and more used um, in larger labs. Um, to prevent the RHD alloimmunization, immunization, all RHD negative women should receive anti-D uh, immune globulin uh, after sustaining trauma, pretty much a blanket recommendation, but the dose can be calculated or modified um, if there's significant uh, hemorrhage um, suspected based on the, the, the two tests above. So um, the people that help you coordinate this are your blood bank, um, and if you get in touch with them, they'll help you get the right test recommendations and the, the Rh dosing. All right, so I'm going to run through some pregnancy-specific considerations. So we did physiology of pregnancy. We talked about general critical care and trauma principles for pregnant women. Let's go through some of the pregnancy-specific complications um, that you're going to be asked to treat. So, uh, you know, obstetrics calls and says, I have a patient I need to admit to the ICU. And you say, oh, boy. Um, preeclampsia and eclampsia are one of the most common causes of morbidity uh, that we see in the ICU um, And there's a a bunch of reasons these patients can end up being cared for by you. So let's talk about the pathogenesis real quick. Um, Preeclampsia and eclampsia is actually a really interesting disorder. There is, and the diagram here is going to illustrate some of this, there's abnormal implantation of the placenta that underlies this disorder. So on the left, a non-pregnant patient. Uh, in the center, a patient with preeclampsia. And on the right, a, a normal pregnancy. And you can see that in the normal pregnancy, the placental implantation has occurred kind of deeper and more firmly with the spiral arteries um, than in the abnormal middle section, um, which is preeclampsia. So not as not as uh, uh, deep penetration into the um, myometrium and not actually as good of blood flow to the placenta. So preeclampsia is a placental kind of chronic hypoperfusion state This causes chronic oxidative stress and um, releases cytokines, and this is thought to underlie a lot of what um, happens um, with preeclampsia. So there's this local effect, which is probably desirable to help increase blood flow of the placenta, but as these cytokines, um, you know, as the placenta and this oxidative stress develops as the fetus gets bigger, uh, this becomes a systemic condition for the mother. So um, it actually leads to maternal vasospasm, an impaired organ perfusion in a variety of different um, organs, as well as activation of the coagulation um, uh, cascade. And so when I say multi-organ, um, everything from neurologic changes, such as uh, cerebral irritability, um, uh, headache, blurred vision, visual changes, um, there can be epigastric and right upper quadrant pain. Uh, people say there's a cap- caps- uh, capsular stretch phenomenon with the liver. Sorry about that. Um, And there have actually been reports of hepatic rupture um, based on liver infarcts. Um, These patients are at risk for stroke. Um, They can have renal dysfunction. Uh, The proteinuria is obviously a hallmark um, of preeclampsia, but can progress to oliguria and renal failure. So clinical hallmarks for preeclampsia that you should know about for the ICU, the patients present very hypertensive Um, They are also hypovolemic, and I want this to be one of the pearls you take from today. Patients who have preeclampsia are hypertensive, but they are hypovolemic. So as you initiate your therapies and you consider this patient's volume status, remember that they are likely to be intravascularly volume depleted, even if they have uh, sort of systemic edema um, and renal dysfunction, which can definitely come into play. Seizures are what defines eclampsia from preeclampsia. Um, and all patients that have preeclampsia are felt to be at risk for seizures, as well as the other neurologic impairments we talked about. HELP syndrome is considered to be part of the eclampsia, preeclampsia spectrum, although um, some patients that develop HELP syndrome um, don't have the hypertension or proteinuria that uh, accompanies pre- severe preeclampsia. So HELP syndrome, if you don't remember, is a hemolysis, um, elevated liver enzymes and low uh, platelets. So this is where your thrombocytopenia less than 100,000 comes in. Remember I said normal mild thrombocytopenia, um, you know, slightly less than 150, but less than 100,000 need to be thinking about HALP syndrome. The hemolytic anemia is um, diagnosed by elevated LDH, just site's in the smear, and then elevated transaminases and right upper quadrant pain are also common. Differential diagnosis includes acute fatty liver of pregnancy, which I'll talk about in a minute. So how do you treat eclampsia and preeclampsia? And one of the mainstays is antihypertensive therapy, and I'll discuss that on the next slide. Uh, seizure prophylaxis is performed with magnesium sulfate. And this is where you see patients receiving high doses of magnesium. It's usually not targeted at a specific serum level. Um, but be careful, because when your patients in the ICU are being treated with this, they're going to be at, at um, risk of having magnesium toxicity, because a lot of times they'll also have renal dysfunction. So they can get iatrogenic magnesium toxicity. That's going to manifest as QT prolongation, loss of reflexes, and respiratory failure. So be careful when you're giving magnesium therapy to a critically ill patient. 40% of the seizures that happen in um, uh, eclampsia are actually postpartum. So therapy for preeclampsia has to be continued for 24 to 48 hours uh, after delivery. And delivery is definitive treatment for this condition. Remember, it's the placenta that's causing this. So getting rid of the, or not rid of, uh, removing the fetus (laughs) um, and getting rid of the placenta are going to be the uh, therapy there. All right, so managing severe maternal hypertension. This is one of the most common things you're going to be asked to do in the ICU, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. The goal of therapy for severe maternal hypertension is getting the blood pressure down, but like with all of our hypertensive disorders, you don't want to make it uh, bottom out, and you don't want to make it aggressively normal, Okay, You are doing this to limit the mom's risk of having stroke. That's why you're going to treat the hypertension. And the recommendations range from starting treatment of systolic pressure of 150 to 160, um, or diastolic of uh, 100 to 110, depending on your institution and and uh, individual patient's risk. You want to consider the duration of hypertension and target organs. So if a woman is complaining of headache, blurred vision, you may be more aggressive. Um, If she's been a chronic hypertensive her whole life, you may not need to be as aggressive with your therapy or with your targets. Uh, recommended target is 130 to 150 over 80 to 100. So again, not trying to normalize and please don't overshoot. Remember, Preeclampsia is hypovolemia, so when you're initiating therapy, start low, go slow. Make sure that you don't vasodilate this woman and uh, have a, a, a more dramatic effect than you wanted. Um, one of the goals is also said, you know, and this is similar to all of our hypertensive disorders, you know, goal of reducing the MAP by no more than 20% in the first two hours um, to kind of promote that safety. Remember, there's no autoregulation in the um, uh, placental circulation, so you need to do this with good fetal monitoring. What drugs do you use? Mixed evidence on this. The most experienced cumulatively is with labetalol and so those are great agents to start um, first. Nicardipine has less experience, but so far a favorable profile. Um, Nitroglycerin can be an option if a patient has pulmonary edema, um, but the things you want to avoid are your ACE and ARB drugs and nitroprusside, which carries a possible risk of fetal cyanide toxicity, although um, you know, if you need to use it for you know, 30 minutes to get a patient to delivery if she's, uh, you know got an active intracerebral hemorrhage, um, you can justify it there. Quick review on liver dysfunction and failure. Um, in pregnant women, there can be multiple causes for liver dysfunction. Um, the, one of the more dreaded ones is the acute fatty liver of pregnancy. Fortunately, this is a rare disorder. Interestingly, this has an um, inherited sort of a genetic mechanism that underlies it, and there's a d- defect in the mitochondrial fatty acid metabolism. Um, there, uh, it's the, the long-chain... Um, enzyme that participates in metabolism uh, is deficient or mutated. Um, this disorder um, requires emergent delivery after stabilization, and most women actually recover without transplant. Fortunately, it's rare um, one in 7,000 to 1 in 20,000 deliveries, um, and it's going to occur in the third trimester um, almost uh, exclusively. The differential between um, the HELP syndrome and acute fatty liver can be difficult, and there can be substantial overlap. You may have a patient who has preeclampsia and is showing signs of this acute fatty liver. Remember that hepatic insufficiency, so encephalopathy, hypoglycemia, severe you know, coagulation abnormalities are, are more in the spectrum of acute fatty liver of pregnancy than HELP syndrome. Um, and in both of these, the aminase elevations are present but not extreme. Uh, usually less than 1,000. So if you have wildly elevated transaminases, make sure you're looking for other causes, viral toxicity, et cetera. Um, you also, because in HELP syndrome, you can develop hepatic infarct and hepatic hematoma, make sure you get imaging early to, um, to rule that out with just a, a, an ultrasound is usually sufficient. Amniotic fluid embolism is one of the things that, um, if you've ever encountered it, just makes your heart literally stop. This is a devastating complication of pregnancy. It's one that I hope you'll never encounter, um, but it's important to understand that it can happen unpredictably um, uh, to women. So this is a a, a, a sudden, abrupt um, presentation of respiratory distress cardiopulmonary collapse, and coagulopathy, and disseminated uh, intravascular coagulation. It occurs during or immediately after labor. So it's been reported up to 24 hours after labor, but most happen within about 8 minutes of delivery. And the pathology that underlies this is there's amniotic fluid components that breach the maternal circulation um, somehow during delivery, so um, through the endocervical veins, through during a C-section, you know, a direct venous injury in the uh, uterine lining. um, And the amniotic fluid entering the maternal circulation in a sufficient dose causes an overwhelming SERS and inflammatory, almost anaphylactoid-type response. So these patients present with profound hypoxemia, profound hypotension, and agitation and confusion. And this can make a, you know otherwise happy delivery an incredibly chaotic situation within seconds. Um, there um, is some evidence that amniotic contamination happens even in patients that don't present with the amniotic fluid embolism syndrome. So it possibly is related to sort of just the dose of exposure to the amniotic fluid, but there's no definitive test. It's not that if you find amniotic components in the circulation that it definitely happened because it can be found without that. So this is a little diagram that kind of takes you through Um, the top. You have exposure of fetal tissue to maternal circulation, and this sort of activates um, inflammation. One of the most profound early findings in this is severe hypoxemia. And um, of the patients who die within the first hour, about half of them die from hypoxemia. So um, there's pulmonary vascular constriction that can lead to acute right heart failure. So there's sort of this initial phase um, within the first hour with cardiovascular collapse related to right heart failure, hypoxemia and severe pulmonary hypertension. Um, And then there's a sort of a delayed phase that can happen with LV failure, uh, more similar to the sepsis-induced myocardial um, dysfunction or the inflammatory-induced myocardial dysfunction that we're used to seeing with sepsis. all of this makes the patients very hypotensive. Um, the hypoxemia and hypotension um, can have some pretty significant neurologic uh, consequences. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, um, the patients can develop DIC and hemorrhage, obviously, through their um, recent uh, sources of hemorrhage. So it's, it's impressive when it happens. Uh, fortunately, it's rare. Um, but there is a relatively high mortality associated with this, 20 to 60% in some reports. Uh, and a lot of the survivors uh, in the case series have a, a high degree of uh, neurologic morbidity um, you know, from uh, anoxic injury. Again, there's no definitive test. You just have to have clinical suspicion for this and treat it early and aggressively. Um, I suggest rescue oxygenation therapies be initiated early um, because of the high, you know, one-hour mortality for um, hypoxemia, so immediate intubation and getting your resources um, to provide that higher level of oxygenation support. Um, Vasopressor and especially inotropic support because right heart failure uh, early in the first hour, left heart failure um, evolving um, in the the next coming hours are a pretty um, substantial part of the hemodynamic instability that goes along with this. You may also consider strategies to reduce the... um, uh, pulmonary uh, vasoconstriction. Blood products for DIC, don't let the team's get confused looking for, um, sources of active bleeding if the problem is DIC. So pay attention to IV sites, you know, other sources, um, that, that may be bleeding. And if you think you have DIC, don't waste time in the OR, um, if you, if you can help it going after, um, mechanical sources of bleeding. Um, there's been actually some very, uh, good outcomes from early ECMO because this is thought to be a transient phenomenon, this sort of anaphylactoid inflammatory thing. So if you can support a woman through it, um, there actually have been good outcomes reported, um, I think the a couple case reports of uh, discharged to home within a week um, after ECMO for this for this uh, problem. Um real quick review on peripartum hemorrhage. Um, This is more so that you remember these words when a patient presents to your ICU. If somebody tells you a patient has a placenta accreta, increta, or percreta, you need to kind of have the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. These patients are at very high risk for peripartum hemorrhage. These are abnormal um, implantation patterns of the placenta that can lead to acute and and substantial hemorrhage. In addition, placenta previa, which is shown on the right there, is where the placenta um, uh, is over the you know delivery canal um, and can be disrupted by the fetus uh, during a vaginal delivery. Postpartum hemorrhage, as I said, probably the number one admission diagnosis for the ICU. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about management of hemorrhage. You guys have had blood component lectures. Um, you You know how to do a massive transfusion protocol, which is entirely appropriate here. Um, I'll just remind you that the differential includes uterine acne, placental retention, which requires a specific therapy to um, uh, improve, uh, delivery trauma, and coagulation disorders that were previously undiagnosed. The uh, treatment for this, overlapping and escalating, is examination and exploration, looking for um, previously undiagnosed trauma um, or placental retention. Uh, Uterine massage to try to decrease uterine acne, and that can be done externally or internally if it's during a C-section. Uh, pharmacologic therapy, oxytocin, prostaglandins all aimed at causing um, uterine contraction, clamping down those spiral arteries, decreasing blood loss from the uterus. Um, and in severe hemorrhage, um, uh, recombinant factor 7a has been used uh, successfully. Um, there's a, a lot of case series about maternal hemorrhage and, and that drug. Um, there's options for uterine tamponade. Um, so if you feel like you're losing ground here, there's options for uterine packing and balloon therapy to try to tamponade the bleeding. Um, And more popular has become uh, IR embolization. But there's also surgical therapy, Um, B-Lynch sutures are basically big retention sutures placed over the uterus and cinched down to kind of manually compress the uterus and um, decrease the bleeding, and then obviously a cesarean hysterectomy uh, in extreme cases. And the cesarean hysterectomy is going to be more for your abnormal um, placental uh, implantation, the uh, accreta, increta, and percreta tends to be more when you see this um, c hist uh, scenario, but it can be pretty impressive. Pre-partum cardiomyopathy is one of the last things I'm going to talk about. Actually, the last thing I'm talking about for um, pregnancy-specific conditions. Um, again, you know, not a ton different in the management uh, of this compared to a normal cardiomyopathy. But this is women who present in the last month of pregnancy through five months postpartum. Um, you know, with sort of a typical onset of congestive heart failure. There's unknown etiology, but there are known risk factors. Um, age greater than 30, um, multiparity, history of pregnancy complications, and long-term use of tocolytic therapy. It's unclear what causes this, possibly inflammatory response. Myocarditis has been implicated in some patients, and um, a failure of remodeling. So we actually said that in the beginning that cardiac output is gonna increase substantially, and there seems to be some women that um, aren't able to compensate for that and then develop this uh, uh, heart failure. So um, diuretic therapy, afterload reduction, inotropes is appropriate, all that, um, that you guys have learned in, in other, on other topics. Um, you may need to consider early delivery for advanced heart failure, but it's not necessarily recommended as definitive therapy for uh, uh, mild or manageable um, heart failure. Um, predicting persistent LV dysfunction, so 4% of these women go on to need transplant. Um, at t- at uh, two years, there's about a 10% mortality, actually. Um, An LVEF of less than 30%, And an elevated japonin are two of the things you can use to predict that long-standing dysfunction. All right, so I'm going to use the last couple minutes of this talk to talk about maternal cardiac arrest and the perimortem C-section, which is what everybody kind of, uh, you know, doesn't want to think about, but in this room does need to think about um, when they're getting ready to take care of pregnant patients. Start with a review of 94 cases of maternal cardiac arrest that were reviewed in resuscitation in 2012. Average age of 30, average gestational age of 33 weeks, and in uh, 87% of the 86 viable pregnancies, so women who um, were at 23 to 24 weeks or or beyond, um, there was a perimortem cesarean delivery uh, performed, and we'll talk about this that in, in, a, in a couple slides. Um, in this series, of delivery averaged 16 minutes. Um, Which you know is probably longer um, is you probably know is longer than the uh, guidelines recommend for delivery uh, around the time of a cardiac arrest. Of these 94 patients, um, in 60% they were able to obtain um, uh, obtain spontaneous circulation. 89% of those survived a discharge, and 88% of those had a good neurologic outcome. So this is a survivable event um, if it's managed appropriately trauma, maternal cardiac problems, um, uh, fluid embolism, and severe preeclampsia account for a lot of these, and 67 percent in the series uh, occurred in the hospital. So of those. Um, you can see here it kind of breaks down about 20% each from pre-existing cardiac complications, especially the structural conditions that limit cardiac output. So if a woman has mitral stenosis or um, aortic stenosis, some kind of stenotic valvular lesion, um, that can be a particularly important trauma. Um, and then you see the uh, fluid, em- fluid embolism uh, that we talked about. Toxicity can be iatrogenic. That can be your... Um, uh, uh, drug overdoses. Also of note, there's a a phenomenon of a high spinal. When a woman receives a spinal anesthetic for her delivery, um, if the spinal um, anesthesia medication rises higher than it was anticipated to, it can actually produce what's called a complete spinal block, which is loss of consciousness, loss of ability to regulate hemodynamics, respiratory uh, arrest um, for the duration of of that drug's action. So that can cause cardiac arrest as well. And of these, 8% of them occurred in the ICU. Um, the rest were in the OR, emergency department, or labor and delivery. So what do you need to know for maternal CPR? Okay. Remember that pre-arrest, so if you have a woman who's unstable, there's that in utero resuscitation phenomenon that's turning the woman into full lateral positioning, um, giving her you know, a high amount of supplemental oxygen and, and fluid bolusing. But if you've actually progressed to maternal arrest, you're going to go ahead with standard ACLS drug doses and defibrillation doses. Remember to remove the fetal monitors before you defibrillate if it's possible. Um, And consider adding calcium gluconate if you uh, suspect that the patient may have magnesium toxicity as part of their arrest. Remember, magnesium widens the QT, um, and you can um, actually get uh, um, arrhythmias that way. A lot of the CPR guidelines will tell you to turn a patient, you know, do the lateral positioning with a board, get a bump under the hip. I'm going to change what, I'm recom- or what, what, what the recommendation is, and this is based on some, some of the emerging literature. Um, the effective chest compressions are drastically reduced, um, not only because you're taking time to position the patient into that lateral tilt. Uh, this is during cardiac arrest. Um, but also just mechanically you can't get enough force to do high quality CPR so instead of tilting the patient assign one person to just manually displace the uterus so they'll probably stand they can stand on the patient's left and pull towards them or they can stand on the right and push away but you're trying to get the uterus a couple inches off the midline um, and that can be done by one dedicated person so you'll have a chest compressor and then a uh, they, they call it a tummy pusher actually just get the, the, the uterus displaced off the cava um, and forget about the tilt forget about finding the different props to do that. You're going to give better CPR and you're going to do, do better for the mom and baby if you just push the um, uterus off manually. And then you also need to consider, does this patient need a perimortem cesarean delivery? Uh, one other point I wanted to put in CPR, make sure that your venous access that you're giving your code drugs through is above the diaphragm um, because of that venous return phenomenon. So not the time for a femoral line or a foot IV. You want to make sure you're getting everything uh, up, above, up above the belly. So perimortem cesarean delivery is a resuscitative intervention for the mother, okay? First and foremost, you are going to deliver the fetus because it's going to benefit your resuscitative effort for the mother. Without this procedure, you have 200% mortality. You're starting from a point of cardiac arrest with the mom where the baby is not going to survive because it's inside the mom. So you have the potential to reverse both the, the mother's um, uh, mortality and the fetal mortality, um, if you can perform this in time and do it correctly. This is where we get into competency in the rare event. So, you, you are never going to get to practice this. You are never going to get to do this ahead of time. So, take your time. If you encounter a pregnant woman, or if you may encounter a pregnant woman, this is where you need to think through this read about it, think about it. How would I do that? Which one of our you know, staff would do what? Where would the instruments come from? And that's going to vary, practice to practice, unit to unit. Um, You need to do simulation, you need to do visualization, you need to do pre-planning to make this work successfully. So when are you going to perform perimortem mortem delivery? You're going to have two types of patients. You'll have a patient that comes into the ED or comes into the trauma bay or you'll have a patient that you know well and has been sitting in your ICU for a while and is decompensating. The difference is, in your patient in the ICU, you'll probably know the gestational age, although remember, if a patient doesn't have good prenatal care, a guess may not be accurate um, as to how far along uh, the fetus is. If your patient's coming in in the trauma bay, you may not have no information whatsoever. So you're going to perform this on an obviously pregnant patient, and that's a very simple guideline. So um, if the fundus of the uterus is at or above the umbilicus, that's probably significant enough to be causing caval compression and therefore because this is an a resuscitative maneuver for the mother it's probably indicated so um just add her above the belly button if the belly looks big um it may be worth uh uh doing um when so you're going to do this if return of spontaneous circulation um, is not rapidly obtained so guidelines for this say that w- within f- at 4 minutes you should be making your decision about whether or not you're going to perform a cesarean delivery so the code starts you get two rounds of CPR and then you need to make your decision the guidelines the guidelines also say that once you make your decision you have one more minute to get the fetus out which means if you are going to do this successfully you need to start thinking about this at minute 0 or i would suggest before days, weeks, months before, um, you know, you need to start getting your instruments, your personnel uh, ready as soon as the code starts, so that if you want to, um, you know, make your yes/no decision at four minutes, you actually have a chance of hitting that five-minute mark. Okay, that's all well and good, but reality is somewhat different. I will tell you that if you perform this later, there is still a chance to have it be beneficial to the mother. So, if you've missed the five-minute mark and your 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 mother hasn't, you know, gotten spontaneous circulation back. You know, press on with the delivery because um, as late as you know, 10, 15, I think there's even one of 30 minutes into an arrest um, having a benefit from having the, the uterus be evacuated. Um, but your best chance for a good outcome for mom and baby are going to be the sooner the better. If you have a mom who's clearly not going to be regaining spontaneous circulation for whatever her mechanism of arrest was, you can proceed immediately. Okay? So it's going to depend a little bit on, on your scenario. So to summarize that recommendation, less than 20 weeks, um, the the perimortem sterion delivery not recommended because the uterus is not likely large enough to compromise maternal hemodynamics. Um, If there's something else going on, you know, multiple gestation or some other um, uh, abnormal pregnancy that you think that's an exception, you know, if the the uterus seems big enough to be causing problems, it's reasonable to attempt that in the setting of a cardiac arrest. Between 20 and 23 weeks, it's not going to benefit the fetus because the fetus is pre-viable, although your information may have been wrong about how old the fetus is. Um, but this may still benefit the mother, so it's reasonable to proceed. And after 24 weeks, you have the potential to benefit both. Procedure. There's a lot that can be read about this. There's actually some nice stuff um, uh, in some of the emergency medicine sort of uh, websites. Um, first-hand experience of people who have performed this and sort of write and break down, you know, how it was or wasn't um, what they expected. And I, I found it very interesting to um, to read. There's going to be a vertical skin incision. This is not the time to go for you know your low fan and steel incision vertical skin incision from um, pubis to fundus um, and um, uh, once you've done that incision, dissected through the um, uh, subcutaneous tissues, gotten through the uh, peritoneum, the the uterus will be there. It can be externalized and you'll use a a sharp incision in the lower portion of the uh, anterior uterine wall. Extend that upwards with scissors so that you don't cut the baby. Um, And then to deliver the baby, you reach in, find the head, remove the head, and the, the, uh, the body follows at that point. Um, the cord gets clamped twice and cut, and then you need to hand the fetus off to um, somebody that can work on neonatal resuscitation. The baby will look purple. Um, your job is to have performed that uh, procedure and, and, and uh, refocus attention back on the mom. Um, so practical considerations for this. You need to have a specific or general advanced plan. There are some institutions that do drills for this, a maternal code blue drill, Um, Don't waste time transporting to the OR. If this is going to be performed, it needs to happen where the arrest happens. Period. Um, High quality CPR has to continue throughout the delivery. So you're going to need three teams. A maternal resuscitation team, uh, an operative delivery team, and a neonatal resuscitation team. The team dynamics and strong team leader, um, important in every arrest, are going to become exceptionally important uh, in this kind of chaotic situation. And the pearls for this, um, you know, having those different teams trying to designate them as early as possible. Remember, this is a resuscitative measure for the mother first and foremost. Your best chance of having, you know, fetal good outcome is within that four to five minutes. But if you're beyond that, this can still benefit the mom. So don't memorize the number four uh, as a a hard limit. And um, as soon as possible is the the only time consideration. All right. And that was your whirlwind of your critical care. i um, happy to take questions.
0: So I, uh, I don't know if some of you remember. It was one maybe two years ago, and we had to do it in the MICU. And I'm getting PTSD, like palpitations, listening to you talk about this. Uh, is, I mean, from what I recall, the baby did okay, but, yeah, the mother did not. Um, yeah, so it's... It, Does happen, hopefully not on your watch, but you got to be prepared for everything. I think that some good points are just understanding physiology, and in order to understand the pathophysiology, you got to understand the physiology. And uh, and that kind of leads me to a couple of things. First is, you know, the hypercoagulability of um, pregnancy that you discussed. Things happen for a reason. So, I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, most. Uh, deaths you know in in uh women i 'm sure hundred whatever however many that millennia ago um, were uh hemorrhagic deaths you know in the setting of pregnancy i mean even a hundred couple hundred years ago i mean is you know a lot of uh hemorrhage induced pregnancy you know uh, deaths world, right? yeah exactly in other parts of the world so um there, it, and so the ones the women that May have I mean thinking from a practical standpoint the ones that you know were able to clot effectively you know, are the ones that survived and so whether that's passed on and uh, and now we get DVTs PEs you know cerebral venous you know sinus you know or sinus uh, yeah venous sinus thrombosis. Um so in, in kind of leading to the DVT PE deal and a thing that we'll frequently encounter in pregnant patients is did this patient does this patient have a PE Right and how do we diagnose it? And um, I I, I don't know if you want to touch on. I'm happy to as well because we're working in the ED sometimes. Um, uh, You know, assessing radiation exposure to the to the fetus. um, You know, you get a lot a lot of zap radiation uh, to the uh, chest itself with CT, but. Um, there are ways to minimize the exposure to the um, abdomen, whereas with VQ, which we'll say, oh, just give them a VQ, lower, but it's actually, you have the, the nuclear um, isotopes do circulate in the, in the blood itself, so it actually delivers a higher, VQ delivers a higher um, radiation concentration to the fetus. So CTA is, a, CTA is a way to go if you're gonna go there. The other thing is um, cardiac arrest, um, the uh, so a couple so what do you do after to touch on your question John um, in terms of hemostasis that's one issue um, guys in uh, Minnesota who are really into cardiac arrest and how um, you handle it uh, talk about uh, abdominal compression um, to as sort of like an external balloon pump you know how do you pr- uh, improve diastolic pressures improve coronary blood flow um, during diastole and I mean so. I mean, yeah, we want to improve uh, venous return with uh, uterine displacement, and but I mean, and this is just totally me shooting from the hip. I wonder, you know, like press it on the aorta, you know, afterwards. But from a let's say you do all that, surgeons are there and save the day, right? Hopefully, the um, what do you do with the with the uh, mother, the survived mother? Um, um, so I mean, then the hype hypothermia or targeted temperature management. But then to touch on that, to go with me with my high caffeinated state, is um, uh, we actually did last, was it last? 2012, uh, a few of us put out a um, the first case report of a uh, pregnant mother that actually had a cardiac arrest that we uh, cooled. And we did um, uh, following... A couple years after the uh, delivery, successful survival of the mother and the successful delivery of a healthy uh, baby uh, we did, uh, we followed up on the um, milestones and developmental milestones of the child, totally normal kid, a couple years after. So, um Targeted temperature management, fever control, whatever the, However, you want to handle that debate. Um, it is feasible in a in a uh, pregnant woman, and in the, in the, um, the guidelines have changed largely, you know, based on some successful reports. That yeah, um, any any other questions? Yeah. Any, yeah, like, like, has, yeah. yeah, I mean, just like from a, I mean, you you brought up uh, SVO2 or SCVO2 monitoring. So I just got back from the SCCM conference, and that that's a big thing, like volume responsiveness and not in a different kind of topic. How do you, what's the, you know, the holy grail, and, and really we haven't. Uh, found it yet? It's it, the holy grail is really following up on your intervention and, and titrating subsequent interventions based on that result. Result, but from a mag standpoint, you just got to recall from physiologically going back uh, mentioned before. You know, it's a divalent cation, uh, similar to calcium, and so calcium is involved in smooth muscle contraction. So, and there's a competitive antagonism that occurs, with, uh, mag and calcium. So you get so vascular relaxation. Uh, uterine relaxation with MAG levels. I've seen reports like eight, you know, is rough. I mean, if I had to pull something out, I mean, because you'll see levels um, on the, like, on, uh, OB floors. I, I don't, I mean, if there are any med students in here that, that are closer to that, but, I mean, like six an hour, six grams an hour at times. But, it's, but in terms of the, uh, vascular relaxation, through really the hypotension, um, you have pulmonary vascular relaxation that causes the pulmonary edema. You have decreased nerve conduction that you assessed mental status, et cetera. So it's going to be largely, again, clinically based. I agree. Yeah.